0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Jay Newby. Jay is an assistant professor in the Department of Mathematical and Statistical Sciences at the University of Alberta. Jay, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI.
1: Thanks, Sam. I'm happy to be here.
0: Awesome. Uh, well, let's get started by having you tell us a little bit about your background and uh, your research focus.
1: Thanks. Uh, my background is uh, applied math, specifically modeling biological phenomena. Um, I I study small things that move in small spaces. I So small things can be pathogens like virus or bacteria. They can be biomolecules. For the most part, I study things that are moving around inside of cells, but I also study extracellular spaces too. So these tend to be spaces that are on the scale of of a micron, and the objects can be anywhere from a few nanometers on up to several microns. So one of the hallmarks of motion at this scale is that uh, objects, when they're in a fluid, like inside of a cell, they move uh, randomly. And and so my my area of mathematical focus is stochastic processes. And these are dynamical systems uh, that have random elements. So something that's um, changing randomly through time. And that is uh, that describes the, the motion of molecules and, and small objects in, in living systems. Um, my PhD thesis was on uh, modeling molecular motor transport. Molecular motors are, they are molecular machines that, that move things, literally. Uh, they, they burn energy, uh, fuel to, to move objects, cellular resources, uh, large distances. And, and we studied that in neurons. Neurons are unique among cells because they, they have to cast this very wide net. They have to cover so much space. To, to construct neural networks. And uh, that requires actively moving cellular resources around. And we studied the role of molecular motor transport in learning and memory. And, and that's, I guess, what led me to study particle tracking.
0: Uh, and so when you say particle tracking, what specifically are you referring to? Or there, is there a specific type of particle that you're interested in, in this research?
1: So particle tracking really refers to... So taking images with a microscope of these small objects in small spaces, right? Um, so this can be, you know, the cells to virus to many different things. Um, so we take uh, videos of these objects moving, and then we uh, localize the center of the object through time um, and and track its motion. And from that, we can learn many things um, about... Hidden factors, things we can't see about, for instance, the fluid of a cell or the, um, uh, of a mucosal barrier. Mucosal barriers, by the way, they, they defend us against, um, infections and among many other things. Um, so we can learn things about stuff we can see by, by analyzing the, the random motion of these particles. But we also learn things about the objects themselves. So, for instance, we might be interested in how bacteria move around in mucosal barriers Um, because, as we know, there is this very rich ecosystem that we're becoming aware of that that live in our um, GI tract, our our lungs, um, and they they play this very uh, symbiotic role uh, in our physiology. So, really, this task of particle tracking um, has many different applications in biology And
0: your research is using uh, images and neural networks to do this tracking. Can you talk a little bit about the origins of that work? Have you been using images and and neural nets for a while?
1: Sure. Uh, So my background, as I said, is isn't in image analysis or machine learning. Um, When I when I started uh, my postdoc at UNC Chapel Hill uh, with Greg Forrest. I, I was working on many different projects, and at the root of all of these projects, the, the, the data source um, w- it was all particle tracking data. So we would take, you know, this particle tracking, which consisted of what we call position time series. So you know, x y z t basically for a list of different particles, and then we would we would apply stochastic modeling to try and learn things. So um, it became uh, uh, apparent to me that I needed to really study how this was being done. Um, because it's it's this mixture of software assisted um, tools based on you know, traditional image analysis and, and, and really, really heavy human um, interaction. So it's a very um, labor intensive process. So uh, as, as I learned more about how uh, particle tracking software worked, um, I started to think about ways to automate it and that's what led me down the road to learning about, uh, convolutional neural networks. My, um, it's, it's kind of a weird road. My, my PhD advisor had, had done a, a lot of research on modeling, um, visual cortex, specifically explaining how visual hallucination patterns form, um, uh, through various perturbations like drugs or injury, um, and how those form in, in the visual cortex. So I was sort of like vaguely aware of how, you know, uh, uh, neural networks in the, in, in the visual system worked and, and are organized. And so I found the, the, it, it, it was one of the most amazing things reading how these things were actually, uh, trained and that these, uh, feature, um, the pattern, the sequential layered pattern um, matching was spontaneously emerging from, from the training procedure. Um, so I tried to, to apply that technology to the particle tracking task. Because really what, was, what is very time consuming about particle tracking is a very mundane task that humans are really good at doing um, over short periods of time. Uh, and that is just staring at a screen at a fixed image and pointing out bright blobs. I mean, part <laughs> part of, sounds very three, glamorous. I know it's, it's a very tedious job and, and it's usually left to students and lab technicians. Um, and it's very time consuming. Uh, the patterns, the, the way these show up in a microscope image, uh, uh, well, I should back up. So first of all, you know, Say for virus, virus typically are, you know, around 10 nanometers to several hundred nanometers in diameter. And almost all of them are below what we call the diffraction limit, meaning that we can't resolve them with, with uh, ordinary light microscopes. So they show up as blurry blobs, sometimes with these diffraction, like these wavy patterns. So picture a the, dropping a pebble in a pond and then freezing that. You know the ripples, uh, and then putting them around the bright blob. And that's kind of what it looks like. It's called an airy disk. Mm. Right. And so you get these these superimposed particles with little waves around them. And then and then you have to find the center of those um, patterns, right, where the 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 particle center is. And when the when the wave like patterns intersect, sometimes that can really throw off a particle tracking. Uh, software and and generate lots of false positives. So, the patterns are relatively simple. However, uh, uh, microscope images do present some unique challenges. So, first of all, we're talking about biological fluorophores that emit light that we are trying to detect with the microscope, and they emit very small amounts of light. We have to have very sensitive cameras that that detect, and, and they're getting very, very good, they can detect um, upwards of 98% of, of the uh, photons that they're um, being exposed to. But that comes with a price, and that is a uh, very low, what we call signal-to-noise ratio. Uh, that's a common term um, I think that people understand. So these images are very noisy. Uh, so the patterns might be simple, but the conditions are very harsh. Mm.
0: Uh, So I did an interview not too long ago uh, with um, a guy named David Van Valen, who's doing something very similar at the cellular level. He was using, I think, kind of the annotation software that he was using before he started looking at applying CNNs was uh, something called Atlas Toolkit. Have you heard of that? Or do you use something similar?
1: I've heard of the Atlas toolkit. I haven't, I haven't used that. I'm aware of, uh, uh, David's work. Um, uh, I tried, um, before, before encountering his paper, um, to, to do a similar, the very similar thing. And that is, uh, cell segmentation. It's a very similar, um, idea Mm -hmm. to track cells as it is to track, uh, particles. Um, it's very difficult to do the segmentation part of that, um, to distinguish uh, one cell from another as, as individual entities when they're very close together. Um, that's a big challenge. Uh, so we're, um, I've just started my group here at the University of, of Alberta, and that's one of the directions that I would like to go. There are many, many people I've talked to uh, that are very interested in being able to do cell tracking. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, opportunity, I think. And I think this is a great playground for people more broadly interested in object tracking, uh, because the patterns are very simple. So um, it's a great way to do a lot of experimentation and to also have an impact uh, on the scientific compu- uh, community.
0: And so with your work with uh, at the particle level, I imagine that segmentation comes into play In addition to, it sounds like you're trying to maybe uh, relate some particles between frames and maybe determine uh, motion vectors and things like that from one frame to the next.
1: That's right. Yes. Um, We try to do that in a way that is um, as robust and um, widely applicable as we can. But we also have the option to um, bring in physical models. And this is where my my background as a as a stochastic processes um, in stochastic processes comes in. Uh, it's 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 hard to write down a really physics based model for the motion of a person, for example. Um, right. But we can write down very good models for the for the motion of a molecule that that's undergoing Brownian motion. Uh, the classic example of a stochastic process, right? It's uh, the drunkard's walk. You imagine that at every time point. You uh, roll uh, uh, the dice, the proverbial dice to to figure out where you're going to step in the next uh, instant and and how far you're going to step. Um, And you just you assume that you're not going you don't have a a bias or a preference to go in any particular direction. And so you just wander about um, aimlessly. And that and that is what we see uh, particles doing in these videos. So it's it's a very um, concrete and direct uh, and, and valuable mathematical model. But you know uh, we can do we can do this for even more exotic, say for example molecular motors, which sort of processively move in a particular direction, um, and other things as well. So the the tracking through time has its own unique challenges, but of course the main principles are very similar to tracking of of sort of the macro human scale objects as well. Hmm. One of the recurring
0: themes that I've explored on the podcast is this idea of combining neural networks deep learning um, with physics-based models. Uh, and it can be it can be challenging. Can you talk a little bit about how you went about that?
1: Well right now um, we can we can apply methods um separately so we'll do so we do like a like at first we'll run the cnn and do object recognition find the centroid of all the particles and then we kind of have this separate tracking step Ah, okay now the tracking step can also employ machine learning methods like hidden markov models um, bayesian networks basically uh particle filters and that's an unfortunate name conflict (laughs) <laughs> right, the particle and particle filters is not the same as particles and particle tracking, but it, those ideas are the same. So um, those physical models port directly; these stochastic models of the motion port directly into those methods. Then everything is an optimization, and we can even infer things that are hidden, things that we don't see, um, such as uh, you know uh, the hidden state of of a bacteria which uses a flagella like a motor to to move around um uh actively. Um and, and they 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 spread out much more quickly this way. Uh and so we can we can determine if a bacteria say is uh, uh using its flagella right in a certain way um or if it's just passively sitting around. Um and, and it makes a very powerful tool. And and all and what's great about it is all the physical assumptions, right? These are very important when you're when you're writing a scientific paper. You want to explicitly say all the assumptions that you make in your in your analysis pipeline. And and when you use a method like this, they're all in the model, all in this physical model, right? And then everything is an optimization, just uh, just using standard Bayesian statistical tools. Everything is an optimization finding the best parameters, the best fit for that model.
0: You mentioned particle filters. Can you explain what those are?
1: Particle filters, um, they're basically uh, a way of taking um, observations and inferring um, hidden factors that are, that are uh, so, so you, you might assume that you have, I think the classic example is a, a GPS uh, detector in a truck. And so you would like to be able to get an, an inference of the truck's position based on the noisy GPS re, uh, recordings. Um, so you have some sort of model that relates the GPS recording to the to the truck's actual position, but also where the truck has been in the past influences the inference of where it is um, in the next sort of like time step. Um, and so you have a, an observation model and a motion model, and you build these all in together. So, so from the neural network uh, perspective, I think uh, the closest analogy maybe is the, the recurrent neural networks, which use kind of like uh, um, inform- information about the, p- the past, the most recent past, to make inferences about the future.
0: Uh, and so – Given your familiarity with uh, with David's work uh, and some of the audience's familiarity with that work, I'm wondering if there are specific, unique challenges that you encounter here working at the micron level.
1: Yeah, there are many challenges. Um, one being that uh, the it, microscopy sort of developed alongside in the computer age regular photography, I guess you could say, or, or video compression. So all the formats and everything are, there's a million of them and they're all different. Um, so it's, it's difficult to work with the data. Most of the time, everything is uncompressed. So the data sets can be quite large. Um, and, 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 and add to that, that, um, the difficulties of imaging, um, biological entities that are very dim, um, and they're emitting uh, very low levels of light. And so you also have to do, deal with very low signal-to-noise ratios. Um, so we actually also do 3D um, video microscopy. And that is another unique challenge here. And so how do you, how do you apply this convolutional neural networks to 3D videos and, what, um, and to, to also extract useful information there? These 3D video sets, of course, are are much larger than their 2D counterparts. Um, So we have to actually build up special tools to be able to work with those.
0: And in the case of 3D, it's uh, using stereo microscopes. Is that where the 3D models come from or are they generated uh, in a different way?
1: Um, So one of the projects that we're really excited about now is is doing particle tracking inside living cells. And so we do 3D particle, we we collect 3D videos. So we try to image the entire cytoplasm of the cell. Uh, And the cytoplasm is just the fluid on the inside of the cell. Um, So the way this works is that the microscope um, has a stage, what's called a piezoelectric stage, which is, it just has a motor that can move really fast and very accurate, small um, uh, motion movements. And so it moves that stage up and down. And then the camera just takes the images sequentially. So you kind of one layer at a time, you build up a ball, vol- a 3d volume, and then you, it's like a typewriter. You, you, you collect one volume and then you restart to the, the beginning again and collect the next volume. Mm. So and in that way, you get this, this time this time sequence of, of volumes that uh, comprise a, a three-dimensional video.
0: One of the things that struck me in looking at some of the images of these particles is that they're very dense. And so there's a lot of occlusion. There's a lot of overlapping. Um, how do you, did you have to do anything special to deal with that?
1: Well, uh, the answer is yes and no. So um, that is a very difficult uh, problem that you, that you identified. So not only that, but the particles are are appearing and disappearing. They're they're overlapping, including, but then they they leave. They're too dim. They, they basically leave the what we call the the the, um, the focal depth that we're actually imaging. And then and then of course since they're moving randomly, they can come back in. So we have to be able to um, track them only while they're there and decide when they're gone. Um, and the way the neural network does this, um, it sort of, it, it makes, uh, it automatically does a couple of things that, that allows us to at least um, uh, have a, of a, a first start, right. That doesn't generate any, it's not perfect. So for example, when, when two particles overlap each other in 2d microscopy, um, what the neural network will do is just uh, localize a single um, particle in that position. Uh, leading up to that, or just after they they overlap, one of the particles is typically dimmer or smaller, and the neural network will pick up only on the stronger signal. So what typically happens is we just stop tracking an object right once once two um, particles get close enough. And so it does chop short that particular particle track and we might pick it up again later, but this is preferable to making errors um, and mistakes. So uh, we can actually do things to correct for this on the, on the the linking stage where we assemble these, um, these centroids into tracks Um, and there there's been a, a, Probably ten to 20 years of work on this problem, actually, some really great methods out there for this. So uh, we're in the process of kind of building up this this toolbox um, to to correct for these little things that we see. Um, and one of the, so one of the other things I mentioned was that particles appear and disappear. So the neural network always outputs a, a confidence, right? It's not just a yes or no um, answer. It, it, it tells you how confident it is about a classification. We do, you know, foreground versus background, so it's just a binary classification. Um, but when particles are dimmer and they're about to leave the field of focus, that confidence goes down, and so we can actually take that information into account when we're deciding how to link a particle in one frame with, a, with a, an observation in one frame with an observation in the next frame.
0: Uh, and so you... You're using CNNs to do this. Does that mean that someone went through and manually annotated uh, some number of frames in order to give you training data?
1: Uh, great question. So, yes, somebody did do that. That somebody is – well, one of three people was me, and that was not, not the funnest thing I've ever done. <laughs> um, but the, the funny thing is um, we we actually did not up using the hand annotated data. So in the lead up to this, as I was learning, and frankly learning about this technology, CNNs, how they work, experimenting around with them, I, I just built up um, ac- uh, synthetic data, just simulated the way that these, these videos looked. Um, and over time that built up to be uh, good enough that we were, when we trained the neural network with the synthetic data, I was never able to get anywhere close to the accuracy when I replaced that synthetic data with, with manually um, uh, segmented data. So I don't know why, I don't know what the, the reason for that is. I think my, my guess is that it's because the ground truth was so absolute in that, in the synthetic data set. And we were able to um, uh, randomize the appearance and get the appearance accurate enough that, that, um, we, we, we were able to get a robust, uh, neural network out of it. This, this would, this is basically impossible, right. To do with, with human scale images, how do you synthetically create an image of a cat? I mean, that's a very hard problem in of itself, but for, for the scale we were working on because these objects tend to be below the, the diffraction limit, like I explained, the, they're. The, these blurry wavy patterns they're relatively simple to create synthetically
0: huh oh that's that's really interesting and so what types of you you mentioned that you applied um, presumably some kind of noise or filters to augment your data or at least tune it to get as realistic um, as possible what uh, can you elaborate on some of those things that you did?
1: Yes, I, I I randomized everything. Um, so every sort of parameter I could think of, like how the particle size, details about the shape, um, I, I put random background patterns, random amounts of, of background noise. I tried to to shotgun a, as wide a field of of conditions as I possibly could. Um, so that so that we could we could in turn you know use this on on um the idea is to automate this and and what we found in in, in extensively testing it in for over about the last two years now uh on data from dozens of labs um is that it is uh, surprisingly robust to different conditions the conditions that were outside of what we ever trained it on for example
0: and just we, a point of clarification, are you saying that the training data that you developed is robust and other people could build models against it? Or the models that you built are robust and they work with other people's images?
1: The second, right? Okay. Uh, we saw – we've seen that the, the, the tracker is, is capable of, of accurately tracking conditions that we've received from labs – um, that were beyond what we actually included in the training data, the synthetic training data. Uh, one example is um, tracking Salmonella. Uh, these are about one to two microns in size, so they're above the diffraction limit barely, and which means that we can actually resolve the shape. And they're rod-shaped, so they're we trained everything to recognize so like these uh, rotationally symmetric. Blurry shapes with the waves, um, and and so as we as we get images that have perturbations from that from that rotationally symmetric pattern, we we still get um, recognition. Uh, so we can track rod shaped. We've we've tracked comet shaped objects. Um, lots of different kinds of backgrounds. So we never trained it to ignore large bright spots. These, these show up all the time, though, in experimental videos. Um, but the neural network tracker um, evades those. It, it ignores those. Um, so it's been surprisingly robust. Uh, and that's that's really the key here of what we see this, this technology is enabling for us is automation.
0: Do you think that the... Advantage of your synthetic data over the manual? You know, granted, you said you're not really sure why uh, why it worked the way it did, but did you have just a lot more of it? Could it be explained by volume alone, do you think? Or did you compare comparable training data set sizes uh, synthetic versus uh, real?
1: I, I don't think it was the size of the data set. We had a, a fairly large... Um, set of, of hand-segmented data. It, it gets so, um, and this is part of the problem, it's very subjective. There are certain really bright particles that show up and, and there's no ambiguity. There's no mistaking what they are. Um, but you start getting so, particularly when the, when the particles get dimmer, they're about to leave the field of focus um, and reappear. It's a very subjective call uh, whether or not to label them as particles or not, um, so I think that that probably has more to do with it. The synthetic set is um, very consistent. Uh, so we, I tried layering in the the hand segmented data with the synthetic data uh, with varying proportions, um, and and the performance always went down sharply with The amount of uh, the hand segmented data that we used for training, Um, I can't give a definitive reason why that's true.
0: It's it's very surprising relative to the way we usually think about this manually produced ground truth data, and and also the degree to which these CNN models are, you know, they can be very sensitive to undiscernible characteristics of the your actual data and so the simulated data that you think might be looks great you know and close totally confounds these models because it's missing some you know undiscernible or very subtle nuance that um is in the real data so it's very interesting result
1: i completely agree i was i was very surprised when i learned about this technology everything that i was learning um that, you, that real data was absolutely essential. Um, just turned out surprisingly not to be the case here.
0: Uh, and so you developed the the model. How do you how did you combine the model with the tracking element?
1: Uh, oh, so how do I combine the the output of the of the convolutional neural net with the um, path linking? Yes, case? right. Right. So right now they're they're actually quite um, separated. So the first stage is is processing with the neural net, and then and then we 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 segment and what we call localize, which means just estimate the centroid of of the spots, and that's all basically done with the output of the neural network. And then we take you know this um, disorganized or uh, uh, unsequenced collection of particle locations at each frame, and then we link them together. And that is, is, is done. Um, the most robust and most uh, um, widely applicable method is just to use something called the Munkres algorithm, which just says, I'm going to take two sets of objects and find the best match between all of those objects that sort of minimizes some, some cost, um, in this case, distance. So uh, that's a that's a classic tool in object tracking and and we we use an an adaptive method again we also have to decide when to stop tracking or when to start tracking a new object that's appeared and we do that with the confidence from the neural network output but there are a lot of possibilities i think that are very exciting in in machine learning for unifying both of these parts together and really uh taking the linking side, uh, maybe using a stochastic model that's physically based or not, um, but using uh, uh, machine learning and training end-to-end, um, not just end-to-end in the CNN, but end-to-end between the the, the object recognition and the, the object tracking side.
0: How did you evaluate the ultimate performance of the experiment? What were your the key metrics that you were tracking?
1: So we we looked primarily at um, the the success of, of object recognition uh, in in the in in our first paper, um, and so there it was uh, an assessment of of basically false positives, false negatives, right, but also how accurately it we detected the center of that particle, the centroid, um, which is important in a lot of applications. So. Uh, we, we did a combination of synthetic videos that randomized across a lot of different conditions, um, so that we could sort of assess the robustness. And this was mostly to compare it to existing software that's, that's already out there to emphasize, um, the software that the currently existing software really requires manually tuning parameters on a per video basis, um, so we wanted to emphasize the automation part. So that's on synthetic training data. Um, but we also, of course, tested it on experimental videos as well. And those um, were generated in Sam Lai's uh, lab where we were tracking synthetic nanoparticles, virus, bacteria, uh, and and then assessing again the, the, ad, the object accuracy. Since then, um, we have a number of collaborations in over uh, around the last two years where we've um, applied this technique. And so uh, we've, I guess, field tested it pretty extensively as well.
0: You mentioned that when you incorporated the real data, your performance uh, dropped significantly. How would you characterize the performance differences between uh, just applying the model to synthetic data versus real data?
1: It's a great question. So, uh, the, of course, the synthetic videos that we used to test it were minor alterations of the synthetic videos that we used to train it. Um, so, of course, it's going to perform very well on those, even though all the conditions are sort of randomized. Um, the real data, there, there have been some surprises little things where the neural network has failed. And so that's given us the, the opportunity to, to, to tweak things over time uh, and improve things. For, for example, we notice that um, sometimes there is this uh, mixture of, of intensities, pixel intensities, so how bright the objects show up. So there might be some particles of type A and type B, for example, some that are very dim and some that are very, very bright. And the neural network would only um, track the bright ones. So that's something we had to go back, and and we, we built that into our synthetic um, video generation. So the workflow has been that we notice something that the neural network doesn't quite do correctly, and then we go back and build that into the synthetic video generation and retrain. Um, and that's worked really well for us.
0: What are some of the next steps for... Your research group and uh, in this research direction in general?
1: Well, I mentioned before that we're we're very excited about doing um, particle tracking inside living cells. This gives us a, a spatiotemporal temporal measurement of of the uh, the entire cytoplasm of a cell. So we can measure things like crowding, confinement, viscosity. You have to remember that, all of the chemical reactions. A chemical reaction is just molecule A, molecule B coming together, and they, they come together by random motion, by Brownian motion usually. Um, so they're moving through this fluid, and and all of these things like crowding and, and, and confinement and viscosity, they influence the chemical reactions, all of them that are happening inside the cell. So this everything that's going on inside, physiologically of a cell, is it depends on this. Um, and so this gives us a quantitative, uh, uh, measurement, a window into that, uh, into these, uh, conditions, um, to, like I mentioned before, we're, we're doing 3d, um, we're collecting 3d videos for this. Um, and one of the real challenges there has been to, uh, deal with these large data sets. So, uh, a 2d experiment usually generates around one to 50 gigabytes of video data where, a 3D um, experiment is is going to be roughly 10 to 20 times larger than that, so we're easily um, a single experiment can generate you know terabyte uh, or more of data. So we needed so the and, and 3D videos themselves are very large files. Um, so we needed a, a a way of implementing the neural network right that could handle these these uh, large videos, and we did this in with cloud uh, computing. Resources we've been using Google Cloud, which has been extremely um, generous in supporting uh, our commercial and our, and our research projects. And uh, we've been using Apache Beam to basically implement a, a MapReduce-style um, processing pipeline to, to break up these videos and, and process, them, uh, process them one piece at a time. The great thing about Apache Beam and Google's Dataflow is that it dynamically manages the hardware. So if I have a a small set, maybe I only need 20 CPUs. Um, If I have a terabyte, you know, maybe I need a thousand CPUs over hours. And it it dynamically um, instantiates those those virtual machines and then shuts them down when they're no longer needed. Um, We're also um, very interested in delivering this as a commercial web app that people can use. We wanna wanna empower biologists working in labs that typically don't have um, a technical um, computer science background with um, programming uh, skills. So we needed needed to build something that's very easy to use, platform independent, could handle large uh, sets of data. And so uh, a a cloud-based web app seemed like the best option for us.
0: Early on in the discussion, you mentioned a couple of application areas. One was lo- looking at neurons, and the other was looking at uh, some of these micromotors or cellular motors. Have you did you learn anything through the development of the particle tracking system about the systems that you ultimately care about?
1: Absolutely. Um, that's ultimately what we're most excited about doing: is learning. Uh, learning new things biologically, um, speaking. So we we have applied this to um, tracking uh, these small um, uh, fluorescent molecules. We call them gems. They are they're actually synthesized by the cell. Um, they're about thirty nanometers in diameter, uh, and we're we're looking at how um, cells basically program the, the cytoplasm, the fluid, that everything moves around inside um, in in these fungal cells. They're called Ashbia Gossipi. This is in in collaboration with Amy Gladfelter's lab at UNC Chapel Hill. And what uh, what's special about these cells is that m- lots of different nuclei, many multiple nuclei, share the same cytoplasmic space. They're called syncytia. Um, our typical picture of a cell is one nucleus with DNA, right? right. Um, but um, syncytia actually are not that uncommon. We have them in our own bodies, muscle cells, for example. So it's a, an interesting question to understand how multiple nuclei coexist. They all have to undergo division like a like a cell would. There's a cell cycle. And all those cell cycles conflict with each other um, if the nuclei are too close. So we are using particle tracking to try and measure how the cytoplasm is is regulated, programmed in order to um, isolate these nuclei. Or maybe they cooperate. Maybe they compete. We don't. We we there's a lot of questions that we are interested in answering. So this is an ongoing project right now. Um, and we also uh, study mucosal immunology. So we are interested in how virus and bacteria can penetrate a mucosal barrier, um, which could potentially lead to an infection. Uh, So we discovered, um, this is with Sam Lai's lab at UNC Chapel Hill in the uh, um, School of Pharmacy. We discovered that um, these mucosal barriers actually um, trap virus uh, by using antibodies, um, which is a a, a potentially, therapeutically exploitable avenue uh, of protecting against infection.
0: Do you already have uh, some areas of further application of machine learning to your work?
1: Absolutely. Um, So one of the things I would really like to do is, is move to more the human scale tracking world Uh, and, and to keep going with object tracking applied to scientific problems. Um, but to, to track say fish or fruit flies or, um, worms in controlled laboratory settings where you want three dimensional information, possibly from, um, two or three different observation points. Um, and there I would like to be able to, um, to use mobile hardware to, uh, to process this in real time, to process and track images in real time.
0: Oh, really interesting. Uh, Well, Jay, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us about what you're working on. I appreciate you walking us through it.
1: No problem, thanks for having me.
0: All right, everyone, that's our show for today. For more information on Jay or any of the topics covered in this episode, visit twimlai.com slash talk slash 179. If you're a fan of the podcast, we'd like to encourage you to head to your Apple or Google podcast app and leave us a five-star rating and review. Your reviews help inspire us to create more and better content, and they help new listeners find the show. As always, thanks so much for listening and catch
1: you next time.